focus more on the deals than the money. You know, I was very caught up with, oh my goodness, you know, if I find a deal, I won't have enough money. Even if it is a great deal, I won't have enough investors to be able to like do the deal. And I was just very like caught up in that. And I probably spent, you know, from the time I went all in and decided, hey, I'm gonna buy mobile home parks. I'm gonna syndicate mobile home parks. From the time I decided to the time I bought my first park was a year and a half. If we have a good deal, the money isn't the issue. Our bottleneck is finding consistent good deals that make sense. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show for you, the high earning busy professional where we will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Andrew Keel. Today, we're learning about Andrew's experience being a busy professional with a real estate side hustle, ultimately creating enough passive income to leave his day job back in 2015 through mobile home and mobile home park investing. We're gonna learn about how he got started in the mobile home park space, how he met a key figure that helped him reconfigure his strategy to focus more on the parks themselves, eventually creating enough passive income to cover his expenses. And we're digging today into his strategy for finding and creating off-market mobile home park deal flow through a team of virtual assistants who are hustling on the cold call circuit. Really interesting how he has created a lead list, created systems and teams to reach out to those folks and further teams and companies to actually manage his over 2,500 doors. That's right, 2,500 doors or more than that. So it's pretty incredible. He's been very successful in the space, now owns 36 parks and uh, really great to have him on the show. For those of you out there who are mobile home park investors, we're getting a great perspective today from somebody who's been in the space a good while now and has seen the changes in the mobile home park space as the market has matured and shifted, as all markets do. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Andrew Keel. We're talking mobile home park investing and escaping your day job. Let's go. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive into your model for affordable housing and mobile home park investing. But before we get to those details, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your business, and your background? Yeah, happy to. So I started out as a sales manager for a branding and web design firm in Orlando, Florida. Wanted, you know, to supplement my income and ultimately you know, develop passive income after and in, in owning assets after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I started researching and getting into wholesaling and flipping single family homes. Was doing like three or four a year on the side of my W two job, and you know I was I was putting out bandit signs and mailing letters out, and you know just trying to find motivated sellers. And through that, I got the opportunity to buy two manufactured homes up in Ocala, Florida, which is a couple hours from where I live in Orlando. And I went up there and I had no clue like what what to do with these things. I just knew that they had to cost more than $2,200 to build them. And 
It was $1,100 a piece, and they were like 1990s vinyl-sided shingle roof homes in a mobile home park. So I ended up buying them, and I came home and got on YouTube and typed in how to make money with mobile homes, and this guy Lonnie Scruggs popped up, and he wrote a book called Deals on Wheels, and he teaches people how to create mailbox money by buying mobile homes and then selling them on contract to an end buyer. So I did that with these two homes, and I was just astonished by the demand I had when I went to sell these. And I was selling them for $2,500 down and $250 a month for five years. And I had the, like, it was insane. I had like over 50 people per day reaching out to me and I, I just cleaned them out. I didn't even do any real work to them. I just cleaned them out. So I was like, there's something to this. And I liked the idea of having the, the monthly income coming in instead of, you know, on the flips, it was like, Hey, I had a big win and then here's three months of nothing and it was just really inconsistent. So I ended up doing 19 more of those Lonnie deals where I was creating mailbox money and offset all of my expenses, my monthly expenses. And through the process, I met a mobile home park owner who kind of took me under his wing and said, hey, I'll, I'll funnel you my vacant homes and you can have them. I just want the lot rent. So he was giving me homes. I would rehab them and then sell them on contract and we became buds. I was like, man, this guy's not the, the most savvy of investors, man. He's just giving his homes away. But little did I know, he just wanted the lot rent, which is you know much more valuable than the, the home sale income. So he ended up taking me under his wing. We went out to lunch a couple of times and he told me, hey, you know, you should really get into owning the whole mobile home park and not just the homes, you know, that it's more scalable, there's better financing and tax per, you know, tax reasons for it. So I just went all in. I was like, this sounds awesome. I can raise money from investors for the down payment and for in the, the improvements. And I literally went to all the seminars, read all the books, and I, I was able to leave my W-2 job and just fully focus on syndicating mobile home parks. And it's one of the best things we've ever done. Now we're up to 36 mobile home parks, over 2,500 lots. And yeah, it's been a fun ride. That's awesome and quite the achievement. About uh, what year was it that you were able to leave your job? That was 2015. So first off, I'd like to dive into the people talk about in real estate, the addiction to a paycheck versus, you know, having passive income that covers your expenses. What was your experience like, you know, cutting that umbilical cord, if you will, of the paycheck and feeling prepared to do that. You had enough passive income to cover your expenses, but still there are plenty of unknowns that come with life, whether it's, you know, health issues, health insurance, all the other things. I don't know if you have kids or had kids at the time, but a lot of big question marks that come up from leaving your job. What was the experience like cutting that cord and moving on? It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I remember thinking, like talking to my parents and they're like, Andrew, you know, this is not a good idea. My dad specifically, and I love him. He, he's been an entrepreneur my whole life. But my dad was like, Andrew, you're getting into trailer parks. That's not the right decision. You know, you have this, this great job. You're making six figures a year. You know, you shouldn't leave that stability. And, you know, he just was looking out for my best interest. He, he, he didn't know, you know, there's a lot of unknowns when you take a chance like this. But uh, yeah, I, I was nervous even to the point where like I started like a, a property maintenance business on the side to kind of, you know, which was like totally just negative cash flow. Like, like for the time I invested in that thing, it was insanely not profitable. But yeah, it was just like, hey, 
here we go. You know, this is, it's time. Awesome. So I'd love to dig into how you're finding deals, how you're sourcing opportunities, especially today in 2023, when interest rates are high, all markets are competitive, kind of no matter what you're doing, no matter what strategy you're pursuing. So can we walk through your deal or, or lead gen process and systems? Yeah. So one thing I did, you know, seven years ago is I built a huge list of all the mobile home parks in the country. And then I skimmed it down to parks, 50 lots or more. And within an MSA that has at least 50,000 people in it. So we have a list of about 8,000 mobile home parks that we've been, you know, that's our, that's what we fish in. That's our pond that we target. And we also have gotten into self-storage, which we're doing a little bit less of today, but we got into self-storage, did the same thing, built a huge list. And then we have some VAs that cold call those lists and basically just try to confirm information and make offers to, to owners and then funnel it up to a closer, you know, if, if we're within a certain range of, of the, you know, the, the quick value. So that's how we've done all of our deals, you know, kind of that like scrappy off market wholesaler type of mindset just, you know, allows us to, to feel like we're getting a better deal. And a lot of times we're buying from mom and pops, you know, with mobile home parks, like 70% of the mobile home parks in the country are owned by mom and pops that only own one asset. Like that's their only park, not, you know, like in apartments, it's something like 90% of apartments over 50 units are owned by a company that owns more than three assets. So it's just a, it's a different ball game. There's more meat on the bone because you're buying direct from these, you know, mom and pops that are looking to retire baby boomers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you train your VAs on that conversation with prospective sellers? Because that's a that first touch and building that, starting that relationship on the right foot, I can imagine is very key to the process. It's very key. And, you know, I think when we're hiring, you know, we always tell them like, hey, you know, how do you feel about getting, you know, told no, right? Because like, you're going to hear it so many times every single day. And it's all about like our best deals. The seller told us no right away. They said, no, I'm not interested in selling. But then we, you press, you keep pressing and you get to a, a quick offer. And then they're like, wow, you know, I might entertain that. And then no one's ready the first day you call them, right? But then it's just follow up. You know, you follow up once a month, touch base with them. And then sure enough, something happens, right? A life event happens. Somebody passes away, unfortunately, or a heart attack or a health issue. And then they're ready. And it's like, hey, I need to go now. You're here. Let's let's do this. And, you know, it's very important that you're just persistent. I think if I had to boil it down to one thing on the the off market calling. But, yeah, we made over two hundred and sixty thousand cold calls in twenty twenty two alone. So how do you track those? Like what kind of system do you have in the back end to track that follow up? And so we have a we have a CRM that we use that we developed out of Podio. And then we also have a smart dialer, smartphone system that we're using to, that connects into that and records all the calls. And, you know, that's what the VAs use to you know, make their outbound calls. How many VAs do you have on your team today? Today we have six, but it's gotten to be as big as 12. And, and, you know, there's turnover because again, this is, this isn't the most glamorous job, right? You're making cold calls all day long. You're getting told no all day long. So there's been some turnover, but we have six really good ones that, I mean, we incentivize highly because it's worth it. Nice. So having a team like that, and this is something that I experience in my real estate business is 
it's a pretty big carry, right? Folks get expensive. All these services get expensive over time. You <laughs> need to make sure you're doing deals to cover that cost. So how do you think about the you know, expense of carrying a team, having a full-time team so that you're doing deals and, you know, having enough in your pipeline to keep them paid, keep yourself paid and, you know, everything around that. How do you think about planning the financial aspect of it? Yeah, we're super fortunate. So we have a wholesale wing as well, where we wholesale mobile home parks and soft storage facilities, and that fuels the the engine, right? So obviously we're, we're taking the cream of the crop for our buy and holds that we're going to take down ourselves. But we'll also wholesale, you know, a few every year, more than a few. Like we did over three million in, in uh, gross revenues last year in wholesale fees. So you know, we we have a pretty big engine there, and we have a pretty big network from just being around and going to different masterminds that will funnel out a deal that you know doesn't check all of our boxes for whatever reason. It's too small, or it's not in the right MSA that we're in, and we'll be able to to wholesale it and and take a fee to help pay for these expenses, marketing costs, etc. Okay. So having been full-time in this space since 2015, we're in 2023 now, and I'm not a mobile home park investor, maybe sometime in the future, but historically not. I only have outside observations of the mobile home park space. And it seems to me that especially in the late 20 teens and into COVID, there were a lot of new entrants into the mobile home park space. Prices accelerated pretty considerably. We were seeing, you know, a lot of multiple offer type of situations. How has that impacted the space in your estimation? And would you agree with that assessment? I totally would. I just got an email. I want to say it was yesterday on what cap rates have done in the mobile home park space. And They've gone on this journey where it got down to where cap rates for mobile home parks and apartments were neck and neck, like you know, five mm-hmm. cap range. And it's starting to, to, to bell curve up because of obviously interest rates and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has gotten more competitive. You know, I would say there's a lot of big private equity money that's, that's been influxed into the space and the operations and the, the property management of these assets is so different than apartments, right? There's in, With apartments, there's a ton of local great property management companies that could manage 10,000 units, right? Well, mobile home parks, there's not. It's all, you need to have a vertically integrated system. There's very few operators that use third-party managers to manage a mobile home park because it's completely different. You got to have your, you know, your hand on the pulse all the time. Otherwise, homes will get pulled out of your park and tenants will be selling homes to wholesalers and things like that. Like it's, it can get intense and plus the utility infrastructure and maintaining that. So it's, it, you got to really be on it. And that's one of the things that we've built alongside this is our own property management company. We have 84 employees, you know, on-site managers at every property, asset managers, you know, a whole system that's been built out to manage these things effectively. So I would just say, yeah, it's, it's really important to just stay on the pulse of the business. Gotcha. So on the property management side, every business has growing pains and makes mistakes, right? Kind of no, no matter what you do. So what was a mistake that you made early on, on the property management side that, you know, you learned from and grew? Oh man, we made so many mistakes. I mean, the big one that was like, you know, now I look back is like people, right? I hired my friends that like, I felt, you know, could do the the job and family members even. And it was just like, 
it wasn't a good fit. So that's the first thing is just hiring based on like a personality that matches, you know, like my brother worked with us for a while and, and he's, he's a salesperson. You look at his PI, you look at his, his disc analysis, you know, he's not an operations guy that's going to sit there and dot every I and cross every T. So it's just those mixed matches of, of personnel is, is a big mistake. Uh, another big mistake is due diligence. You know, like I went to the Frank and Dave boot camp and they give you, you know, a book, 30 days of due diligence, but there's so much more I've learned and we've added to our due diligence checklist from every single deal we've done. Our, our due diligence checklist is now over 350 items long where it started at 50 when we went to the boot camp. So it just shows you like every deal, you know, experience matters. You're going to learn little hedge case scenarios that they can't teach you in a three day, you know, boot camp. And I think that's why, you know, going with someone that's been in, in, in the space for a while is going to, you know, save you some, some headache and some, you know, hopefully some, some issues. But yeah, we, we got an electrical inspection, checked out all the pedestals and that the guy gave us a clean bill of health. We bring in 20 new homes and we're having brownouts because we didn't have enough juice from the transformers. So we contacted the power company and we're like, hey, we need some, some more transformers here. There's one transformer serving 25 mobile homes and we're having brownouts. And they're like, okay, well, that's gonna be $60,000. Here's the bill. And we had, to, we had to do a capital call to fill that. And that was back in 2018, you know? So now on every deal we buy, we have the engineer from the power company come out, review the transformer setup with us, not just a local electrician to tell us, you know, if the pedestals are up to code or not uh, and where we, where we're missing conduit over some of the, the electrical lines, you know? So it's, it's just taking that extra step to go deeper. And again, we've learned from our mistakes. Nice. Wow. Well, maybe not nice, but an interesting experience. I haven't actually come across that one before, but thank you for bringing it up. So one of the things that I've found being on the outside of the mobile home park space is that municipalities, generally speaking, are mostly pretty biased against mobile home parks for a lot of reasons. There are the stereotypes of, you know, crime and a certain element of, you know, whatever. We've all seen the show, the trailer park, park boys, great show, but you know, maybe not accurate all the time. None on the other side, there is the property tax piece in that mobile home parks just don't bring in as much property tax revenue as other assets, you know, single families, that kind of a thing. How have you navigated the regulatory waters in unfriendly municipalities? Yeah, great question. You know, we don't develop mobile home communities. You know, it's very hard to get zoning approval because of the reasons you just said. Again, not in my backyard. Nobody wants to live right in front of a mobile home park, unfortunately, even though, you know, that these you know, manufactured housing can be built for like half the price of site-built housing. And it's more environmentally friendly. You know, when they build a mobile home today, Clayton Homes, their trash can fit in one trash can. Imagine when you drive by in your neighborhood and you see a brand new home being built. Imagine how many dumpsters they're going through of, of waste that they're creating. So it's, it's just a completely different realm. But I think for us personally, we just try to work with the local municipalities. A lot of times they just want them cleaned up. They want managers that are responsive and, hey, you know, there's a tire in your front yard. There's, there's a, you know, an appliance in your, in your yard. You know, they, we're just working alongside of them. We issue our own violations that have penalties based on our, you know, fines that are based on our rules and regulations. So they love that. They want that because they just don't want it to get out of hand. 
And a lot of the mom and pops that own these assets are just using them as a retirement vehicle. They're not reinvesting into the assets. They're just taking every dollar they can, you know, for their retirement. So when new younger owners like ourselves come in and add value to these things, the cities love it. Also, banks love it. Like the best debt you can get on a mobile home park is typically from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the, the agency lenders. So if you want to get that type of debt, your mobile home community needs to be very nicely maintained. Like they're not going to lend on stuff that doesn't meet their criteria. They want paved off street parking. They want less than 25% park owned homes. They want curbs and gutters. Typically they want paved roads. So when we go in, we buy something that doesn't meet that criteria. And then we raise the money to, to get it to meet that criteria. So then we can go and refinance into best of class financing. And, and it helps us with our returns as well. Okay. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to walk away from a deal that you were interested in because the municipality just kind of wouldn't work with you? And just to kind of roll with what you'd said before, if you wanted to pave the roads, well, I can imagine a municipality is probably going to weigh in on that, right? They have setbacks, all kinds of, they might not let you pave the roads, even if it's an improvement to the community, but just, that's just one example. So have you had ever had to walk away from a deal because of regulatory reasons? Totally. Yeah. So it was a, an older mobile home community and this is the importance of due diligence, right? So we, we went and sat down and met with the, the zoning and the building department and they said, you can't bring any homes in here that are older than 10 years old. So at any given time, if you want to <laughs> fill any of the vacant homes, you can't bring homes in that are older than 10 years old. So it's, you know, it's 2023, that would be 2013 or newer homes. And in this market, lot rents really didn't support bringing in brand new homes that cost $50,000, $60,000. It's a used home market. So that was the first issue. The second issue is they said, oh, well, due to a trans transfer of ownership, we're going to have to come in here and you're going to have to get the fire safety up to code when you buy it because it hasn't been sold in 30 years. But when you buy it, now you're going to have to get the fire safety up to code and you're going to have to install and pay to install fire hydrants, you know, every 100 yards throughout the entire property. And you're going to have to pay for that, you know, with your own money out of pocket. And they just kind of were like making this stuff up that wasn't even in the code. So we had to hire an attorney and write them a demand letter. And, you know, ultimately the seller wouldn't work with us, you know, because of these additional expenses, the deal didn't work. So it didn't happen. But, you know, unfortunately what happened is that park went out of business and it got redeveloped and now they're building an apartment there. And it's almost like, wow, was that the municipality's plan the whole time? And that's why they were making it difficult. It's because they didn't want it to be a mobile home park anymore. They wanted it to not sell and they wanted it to sell to a, another developer. I don't know, but that's what, that, that's what is happening around the country is that mobile home parks are disappearing at an alarming rate. And it is the most affordable form of non-subsidized housing and it solves a major problem, you know, which is affordable housing. Absolutely. For the listeners that aren't watching us on YouTube, I was vigorously nodding my head as you were talking about whether the municipality was trying to force the redevelopment of the park, because that's probably the case. It's interesting that you followed that property after you didn't pursue it to, I suppose, see what happened with it. Do you know the, do you remember the timeline after you walked away from the deal, how long it took for it to go out of business and everything like that? And, you know, your, your process for seeing what happened, because I would imagine you thought, 
well, maybe this will come back around and we can make it work or something like that. Like what happened afterward? So it's in a, yeah, it's in a town that we own another mobile home park, but the other park that we own is on the outskirts of town. This mobile home park was right in the city center, right downtown. So it was about three years that we watched what was going to happen to that, that park. Yeah. It's just really unfortunate, you know, because it was only like 50% occupied, you know, and, and it, it had older rundown homes and you know, the city just had it, had their way with it. So before we go to the three questions, I ask every guest on the show, if you had the opportunity to speak with yourself before you left your job back in 2015 and give yourself one key piece of advice for your full-time real estate investing career, what would that be? I would say focus more on the deals than the money. You know, I was very caught up with oh my goodness, you know, if I find a deal, I won't have enough money. Even if it is a great deal, I won't have enough investors to be able to like do the deal. And I was just very like caught up in that. And I probably spent, you know, from the time I went all in and decided, hey, I'm going to buy mobile home parks. I'm going to syndicate mobile home parks. From the time I decided to the time I bought my first park was a year and a half. So like it, it was a process of, of me being worried that, hey, I won't have the money if I, if I find a deal where I, on every deal that I've found, if it was a good deal, the money wasn't was never an issue. Still to this day, if we have a good deal, the money isn't the issue. It's it's just finding our bottleneck is finding consistent good deals that uh, that makes sense. So, I think that would be my my biggest thing I would tell myself. Awesome. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Andrew, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. We're going to change it around a little bit today, though. We discussed this first one. What is the best deal you've ever done? Best deal I ever did was a value add mobile home park. It was 82 lots. When I bought it, it had 40 occupied. Three months after owning it, it went down to 34 occupied because we had to get rid of some bad eggs, but bought it for a really good price moved into a single family house with my wife and my one-year-old at the time into the front of the property. And I lived there for three months while we brought in homes and we rehabbed the vacant ones. And uh, we were able to refinance out all of the initial money that we put into it, plus like a hundred percent more. And, you know, all within like two years, we still own it to this day. It's a, it's a great performing property. So that would be my, my best deal. Nice. Nice. Love it. So we had the best deal. Now we get to the other side of that coin, the worst deal. We've all done bad deals out there. If you've been around long enough, what is the worst deal you've ever done? So I bought uh, a mobile home park that was a 52 lot park, but there was only eight occupied and it was in Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, it's just, we came in undercapitalized instead of like raising enough money up front to like get the occupancy up we we just kind of stumbled through it and we're going to use the cash flow to reinvest into it and as you can imagine didn't uh didn't go anywhere and you know i think we got up to like 15 occupied after a couple years but it was just a, a rundown property and you know the property taxes were were pretty expensive because there was all this land right it was in a good location but we didn't have enough income coming in so it's kind of just just sputtered along yeah I mean, we still own it, but it's it's one of those we would definitely sell, but it's just not really worth, you know, what we we need to get out of it at this point. So I would say coming in undercapitalized 
it really put a hindrance on us. It kind of like handcuffs you or it's like, hey, if we could have the money to buy the homes to get them in there, we could get the income up and we can really add some value. But yeah, just that's that. Interesting. So what's the plan there? I think eventually we would like to bring in a, a large amount of homes and, you know, get it, get it and probably, yeah, probably at some point do a syndication and like raise the money the right way and then go in and execute uh, the business plan. So yeah, I think it's just myself and one other person that owned that one. That was like one of my first investors. So it's kind of sputtering along, maybe cash flowing a little bit, maybe not some months, depending on maintenance and stuff like that. But yeah, that's the point. Well, those those tough deals are definitely our best learning opportunities in, in our real estate investing careers. And that brings me to my favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Most important lesson, I would say, is time kills deals. You know, even when uh, having a sense of urgency is so important because things can come up and just totally derail a project. Uh, staying on your P's and Q's, controlling what you can control, right? There's stuff that happens outside of our control, but just having that sense of urgency and that drive to push and instead of just emailing the title company to check in on things and maybe you hear back, maybe you don't, you know, call them three times, send send your, your connection, a Facebook message, a text message, you know, hit her up on LinkedIn if you have to, you know, pursue to control what you can control to make sure that things happen on your timeline instead of just whenever they think it's convenient. Wow. Very important. Very important. And Andrea, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of this important knowledge with our listeners. If folks would like to reach out, get in touch, or learn more about what you're up to, where can they track you down? Yeah, the best place would be on our website. It's keelteam.com. That's just K-E-E-L, like my last name, team, like a basketball team.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.